Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you joined us for today's podcast. We're going through a special series called Simply by Grace, the book. When I wrote Simply by Grace, I never dreamed it would have such an impact and be translated into a dozen languages with more in the works. It's published in English by Kriegel, and you can get the book at our website, gracelife.org, or on Amazon, or wherever you buy your paperback or digital books. Like a lot of folks, you might want to buy a bunch and hand them out to people who need a better understanding of God's amazing grace. Grace Life ministers around the United States and the world sharing the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Our ministry is supported by folks just like you, and that too can be done on our website, gracelife.org. What we'll do now is read a chapter of Simply by Grace and follow that with an interview on the topic of that chapter with someone who's going to give further insights about that aspect of God's grace. So, if you're ready, we'll dive into the book. Chapter 5, A Maze of Grace It's a simple concept that eternal life is given absolutely free when one believes God's promise. But it's also controversial. The concept of a free gift is often compromised by a faulty understanding of grace. Some Christians and those of other religions talk about grace, but they distort its meaning. It's important to navigate carefully through this confusing maze of grace. Below are some common misconceptions about grace and how they affect our understanding about eternal salvation. Perhaps you have encountered one of these. Costly grace. Some people speak of costly grace in salvation. It's true that our salvation was costly to God. It required his only son. But some think that our salvation is so wonderful and required so much from God that it must cost us something to enjoy the benefits of eternal life. This leads to the idea that God will not save us eternally unless we commit ourselves to him, promise to serve him, surrender our lives to him, or pay some price. In other words, they think their salvation is costly to them. Sometimes it is said that we must make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives or put him on the throne of our lives in order to be saved. While these commitments are expected of believers, requiring this of unbelievers is inconsistent with biblical grace. If God gives us grace only when we meet certain conditions, it ceases to be grace. As we saw, the Bible could not be clearer about the unconditional nature of grace. Grace is not costly. It is absolutely free. Cheap grace. The term cheap grace is sometimes used in a derogatory way to describe the teaching that grace is free. Just like with costly grace, cheap grace is not biblical. Grace is neither costly nor cheap. It is free. Those who teach free grace are teaching exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible does speak of those who despise or abuse God's grace, and in that way they might cheapen what value it has in their lives. But those who present eternal salvation as absolutely free are not cheapening grace at all. Grace that is absolutely free does not denigrate God or his salvation. On the contrary, it glorifies God and his incomprehensible and unexplainable love, and it motivates us to the most sincere worship and godliest living. Grace is not costly, cheap, or complicated. It is simple and free. Easy Believism The epithet 
easy believism is also used in a derogatory way against the teaching that salvation is a free gift of God. The intent or implication of this charge is that if we teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, without requiring commitments or works on our parts to either earn or prove our salvation, then it is too easy, and that will lead to behavior that abuses God's grace. This term is a complete misnomer, because to believe is not easy. It is not easy to believe that I'm a sinner who deserves to be eternally separated from God. It is not easy to believe I can do nothing to save myself from eternal condemnation. It is not easy to believe that God became a man, lived a perfect life, was killed anyway, and then rose from the dead. It is not easy to believe that a life given 2,000 years ago will provide a payment for my sins today. It is not easy to believe that God loves me so much and is so generous that he will give me eternal life as a free gift. It is not easy to believe, but it is simple to believe because there is only one condition. Believe in God's gracious provision and promise. Assisted Grace Some religions speak often of grace, but only as God's assistance to our own efforts. It is considered as a spiritual boost or addition to our good works or devotion. Roman Catholicism, for example, teaches that God confers his grace on those who keep the seven sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, penance, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, anointing of the sick. The teaching goes that faith alone and God's promise of salvation cannot save anyone. In this view, since keeping the sacraments is necessary for salvation, and the sacraments are things that must be done, the implication is that God's grace is not enough to save us. We must cooperate with him by our good works, and only then will he give us the grace needed for salvation. You can see how this is not grace at all because it must be earned by our works. Insufficient Grace Some religions speak favorably about grace, but they mean that it is only God's favor or kindness. That is how the Jehovah Witnesses understand and translate grace. God is kind and favorable to us and will reward our works and obedience with salvation. Again, however, grace is not grace if it must be attained by our performance. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Mormonism, views grace like a ladder lowered into a hole to allow people to climb out by their own efforts. In their view, grace is an opportunity or ability that allows us to save ourselves. Though grace is God's kindness to us, it is so much more. It is God's total provision of our need, not just a helping hand. His grace is sufficient to meet any need we have, starting with salvation. Licentious Grace a licentious view of grace teaches that since grace is absolutely free, once saved, we can do whatever we wish with no consequences. It is a license to sin. This is a perversion of the biblical concept of free grace. Yes, grace is absolutely free, and yes, there is nothing we can do that will undo our eternal standing before God. If we cannot be saved by what we do, we cannot be lost by what we do or don't do. But the Bible teaches that grace brings responsibility and calls for obedience. When we do not live responsibly or obediently, there are negative consequences in this life and the next. See chapter 9. Believers are no longer under the Old Testament law, but in the New Testament we have the law of Christ and many commands related to godly living. Those who truly understand and appreciate the grace that saved them will not want to exploit that grace, but they will be motivated to live a life that honors God. 
Grace is a higher principle to live by, which, when properly understood and applied, helps us live a godly life. The Bible also admonishes us not to use our freedom as a license to sin, but to serve God and help others. The fact that we are so admonished shows that the abuse of God's grace is a reality for some and a possibility for all. Repentance and Grace The word repentance is very often misused by people in explaining the condition for salvation. The Greek word for repentance is formed from two words that mean afterthought or to change the mind. It signifies an inner change, a change of mind or heart, which should lead to an outward change. When we speak of repentance associated with salvation, it is a general way of describing the change of mind that occurs when one believes the gospel. The unsaved man or woman goes from not realizing his or her need to realizing that need, or from not understanding God's provision and promise of eternal life to understanding and accepting it. In this sense, the meaning of repentance coincides with faith as the condition for salvation. With this use of repentance, there is no contradiction of God's free grace. But many people wrongly believe that salvation comes only after one turns from all one's sins, even though there is no support for defining repentance in terms of outward conduct. To the contrary, repentance as an interchange of heart is demonstrated by the many uses of the word in the New Testament. When John the Baptist, for example, tells the Pharisees to bear fruits worthy of repentance, he sees the difference between inner repentance and the outer conduct resulting from it. If repentance is understood as a change in conduct or turning from sins for salvation, it corrupts the free grace of God. Baptism and Grace There are also those who require baptism in order to be saved. If this were true, then grace would be conditioned on a physical act. Baptism is important in that it identifies someone as a Christian, that is, someone saved by grace. It is an important outward symbol of a spiritual reality. But as such, it is commanded subsequent to salvation, not as a condition for salvation. If baptism were a condition required for salvation, it would compromise free grace. Works and Grace A broad category of people maintain that the grace that saves is dependent on works of some kind. Some say that grace is given only to those who obey God or promise to obey. We who profess free grace call this front-loading the gospel. Others say that grace is really given only to those who prove they are Christians by their works. We call this back-loading the gospel. Some try to argue that the works involved are not works motivated by our sinful nature to earn salvation, but by the Spirit's work in us. But when the Bible disqualifies works as a condition for salvation, it does not make any such distinction. Works as a condition for salvation are dismissed summarily. The importance of good works for the Christian life will be discussed in chapter 8. Many people have taken the principle of simple grace and have complicated, confused, and corrupted it so that it is no longer what the Bible teaches. We want to keep grace consistent with the Bible's teaching, that it is an absolutely free gift. Salvation is simply by grace through faith. That means it is a free gift that someone must merely accept. Free grace is a simple concept, so simple many people miss it. Yet it is so profound that only God can accomplish it. Salvation by grace reserves the glory for God instead of us. In our natural human aversion to grace, we want to do something to earn our salvation. This appeals to our pride of accomplishment or makes us feel worthy. But God gives salvation as a free gift to reserve the glory exclusively for himself where it belongs.
Review questions. 1. How would you refute the terms costly grace, cheap grace, and easy believism? 2. Does salvation by grace allow for any assistance or contribution on our parts? Explain. 3. Explain how a misunderstanding of repentance can contradict salvation by grace. 4. What is the role of baptism when it comes to salvation? Today we're talking with John Salveson about this subject of grace uh, after the chapter A Maze of Grace, which a little bit of play on words because we know and are familiar with the phrase amazing grace. But what we have found out there is that not everybody means the same thing when they mention grace. So we're talking to John Calvis, uh, Salveson, who is the pastor of Bear Creek Bible Church for 28 years. He uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary for his THM and his D-Men. And uh, why don't you tell us about the subject of your doctoral ministry dissertation? Yeah, um, my dissertation topic was cult-like characteristics of doctrinally orthodox churches. So they're churches that are not cults in terms of what they believe. So they're just churches that have basic evangelical doctrine, you know, of the Bible, uh, the Godhead, Jesus Christ, salvation. Everything they have written down is accurate and good. They're, they have orthodoxy, but they don't have orthopraxy. And so the way uh, they treat one another and act is like a cult. Good. Okay. Now, is that in printed form anywhere? Yes. And how do we get that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> how do we get that? Well, it's it's on Amazon and uh, a couple other places. Okay. Uh, it's it's published. Yeah. So it's John Salveson with S E N on the end. And Correct. And the, and the title again, in case, in case people want to look for that. Here's cult-like characteristics of doctrinally orthodox churches. Okay. Cult-like characteristics, John Salveson. That'll, that'll get you there. Or I can um, send you I, the PDF if you just want. To, well, you, never gave me, you never gave me a copy, so I didn't know it was in book form. <laughs> oh, man. I'll email but I have read it. Probably. You gave me a digital <laughs> copy, and I have read it. But I oh, okay. okay. Don't worry about it. Um, so I know you're involved with more than the church you do some other things uh, what else are you involved with well let's see i am a husband and father and grandfather mm -hmm. um, i'm also involved in the community with different activities i'm on the local tennis board which is really good uh opportunities for evangelism um and i'm also on the board of directors of grace life ministry That's you heard right. of that <laughs> one of our newest uh, board members. But you, didn't you also go to Washington, D.C. in some capacity? Oh, yeah, I did. I've been there several times and done, have done some teaching for Family Research Council. Yeah. And okay. um, especially on contemporary issues and taught other pastors how to teach and preach on different social issues. And John has been to uh, Myanmar with us and our teaching team and taught there. Very well received several times. Uh, I think you've been at least twice. Um, and you just went to Rwanda and in June. And how did that go? What were you doing? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, I've been to several other countries to train pastors. That's kind of my focus on um, 
for missions, um, supporting missions in general, but for myself, trying to pour myself into pastors in various countries. And the latest country I went to was Rwanda. And I taught at a pastor's conference there in northern Rwanda uh, back in June for um, a fellow named Pastor Faustin. And uh, he has a, he's building a large conference center there. And he's also one of our missionaries that we support at BCBC. So another fellow and I from church went, went there and had, the, had a great deal of fun teaching about 65 pastors and wives about various leadership topics. Also, of course, got to include the gospel of grace and how that's different than some other forms of the gospel. Yeah, well, that's good. I know your church also goes annually to Mexico and you do pastors training down there. So that, that brings us to our subject today, because when you go overseas, you find that when you talk about grace, people don't always understand it, at least not the way that we want to understand it. So what did you find in Rwanda or what do you find in Mexico or even people in your own church? What are some of the misconceptions that you run into? Oh, it's a big mishmash, you know, especially when you go to other countries, you see a lot of legalism. I hear that from um, foreign nationals who are believers who do understand the gospel of grace and they just shake their heads and say, wow, it's really difficult here. Legalism, as far as I distinguish, I always distinguish between salvation legalism and lifestyle legalism. Right. And there's a lot of both in foreign countries and in our own country too, we have both salvation legalism, meaning you have to do something or stop doing something in order to get saved, fill in the blank there, whatever it is. Um, And then lifestyle legalism, which is probably the problem of the Galatian church, you know, where they were, they trusted in Jesus as savior, but then they went back to the way of legalism by being told to follow the Old Testament uh, Mosaic law. So um, I find um, a lot of different distortions of the gospel of grace uh, in various countries as well as our own country here. Yeah, so you must have people constantly coming to your church who are visitors. And uh, do they do they understand the difference of what you're saying? I know you don't preach about grace all every Sunday, but do they begin to see a difference uh, in what they've been taught and what you're teaching eventually, do you think? Yeah, in fact, um, if, you're, if you're in a church and you're discouraged because you feel like you don't do evangelism, I think this is probably one of the ways that we do evangelism without even, not even knowing it, is that a lot of people come to your church, and some of them might be saved, some of them might not be saved. But the ones that are saved are very confused about the gospel. Yeah, And so you do evangelism by refining it and bringing it back to its pure state. And that's how I find we do evangelism, especially on Sunday morning, even with people who might be saved, some of them are not saved. And they, they eventually, and it's within our same system of belief is in our adult Sunday school classes and our small group leaders, we're all on the same page. And that's important too. And it takes time because, um, not everybody gets it right away. You said to be patient with people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just got back from Ukraine and over there, um, just about everybody believes you can lose your salvation. So in, at the end of the class, after teaching a class in evangelism of all things, and mm-hmm. the gospel message was a big part of that, I gave an invitation. I, I don't know if these people are saved or not, but I gave an invitation. How many know now that you are saved forever? And 
you know, about half the class responded to that. So like you say, it's doing evangelism, but the, you don't really know if they were already saved or not. And one right. thing, I, of course, I had a language barrier there too. Now, when, people, when, we, when we talk about salvation by grace, the way we understand it, which is a free gift of God, and, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, and he gives you eternal life. Uh, people sometimes accuse us of easy believism. You've heard that term probably. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to them? Well, yeah, I would say easy believism and um, believing somehow you have to be baptized in order to be saved are the two biggest misunderstandings. But as far as easy believism, to answer your question, um, the, the way I approach it is it's really not it's not easy. Uh, the gospel is really the biggest offense to the human ego. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, that's why it's like people who want to stay away from controversy. You know, you better not preach the gospel because it's going to offend people because it's at least on three different levels, maybe more. First of all, it's, um, it says that you're a sinner. All right. And I shared the gospel. I said this in church about two weeks ago. I shared the gospel probably, you know, with hundreds of people one-on-one -on -one or in small groups or whatever. And I've only ever had one person tell me that they didn't think that they were a sinner. And I don't think, huh. I'm not sure if that person understands that, but most people will admit they're not perfect. But then when you say that they're a sinner and that they're not connected to God, it's like, that's an offensive thing. But then the, 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 the offense grows deeper or more deeply because it says also that you can't save yourself. That's what scripture tells us. And that's the beauty of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It doesn't just tell us how we are saved. It also tells us how we're not saved. And so we're not saved by our works. And that's another layer of offense, which is really hard to grasp onto and believe and accept. And then the third level of offense is that scripture teaches us that there's only one way. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can't come up with something else. I can't go to another belief system or philosophy or religion. I have to go through Christ. And so it's, it's an offensive message to the human ego. So I don't think it's easy to believe or accept. Yeah, yeah, ego or uh, our our pride. Uh, it's not easy to overcome that obstacle. It's a big obstacle. It's a good way of putting it. Um, so ha have you had much uh, interaction with people from um, some of these other? Well, we could think of extreme religions like cults or uh, some nominal Christian religions, or maybe Roman Catholics or something like this who. Have a different view of grace and uh has it actually come up in conversations yeah all the time because we get people from those systems to our church uh in fact this past year that was one of the unusual aspects of i don't know if it had anything to do with the pandemic but that was one of the i told the elders a couple months ago this is one of the freakish things in the last year and a half we're getting people coming from like different belief systems um right to a level that we've never had before, a higher percent, it's the same number of people, but a higher percentage. And right. so we're interacting with people who are coming from legalistic denominations. Um, and then in some cases, people with a cult background, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon, full cult. Um, right. Now, the thing about the cults is that they use the same terms as us. Right. They use grace, salvation, faith, Jesus, but they have different definitions of those terms. And that's where a lot of people get thrown off because and we're tempted. We all, we all want to get along. We want to like each other. Oh, yeah. Well, you, be, you believe pretty much the same thing because you believe in grace. 
Yeah. It's by faith. Of course it's by faith. Yeah. And Jesus. Yeah. But they have totally different definitions of what they are. Um, um, so yes, there, there's, I have had interactions with folks from legalistic denominations as well as full blown cults. Yeah. You know, uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, I don't know where I got it, but my first Bible was a Jehovah's witness Bible. I didn't know the difference and I read it, but since I, since I know what I'm reading, uh, I notice that they often translate the word grace as kindness. So it's like, they just want to avoid the whole subject of grace, but you sometimes hear grace uh, called costly or cheap grace. Um, when we teach that it is absolutely free, um, what do you, how do you respond to people who talk about a costly grace or a cheap grace? On the other hand, as far as like a costly grace, uh, it would be people who um, want to put themselves into it. Uh, okay. So you have to, it's costly. So you have to give up something uh, in order to be reconnected back to God through Christ. You have to give up something. So it's kind of like the way we would say, you know, front-loading the gospel, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to give up something for it really to kick in, for it to, to be efficacious, for it to be effective. So it, so it is pricey to us. But, of course, that's a mix-up of, it's a mishmash of um, justification and sanctification, right? right? So as far as cheap grace, um, yeah, I hear that one, too. You know, that one's leveled against us. From some people, you know, sometimes they come to our church and, and they realize, oh, we're not teaching lords of salvation or reformed view of salvation or justification. So, therefore, they accuse us of being, you know, talking about cheap grace, you know, that you can do anything you want, you know. And, and I'm teaching through Galatians right now in the men's study on Wednesday night. And um, Paul deals with that, that, that accusation himself. Right. Galatians and Romans, mm-hmm. you know, like in. Galatians 5, 13, he says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. So he deals with it there. And then he also deals with it in Romans chapter 6, where shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Uh, may it never be, you know. So that, that, that's one of the indicators when I first got a hold of the free grace message that I knew I was on the right track because it's like Paul dealt with the same issues, the same accusations that we do. So therefore it must be right. (laughs) (laughs) I have a wonderful quote from Martin Lloyd Jones, but you could quote uh, cite Apostle Paul as an example that if you're not being criticized for preaching license, then you're not really preaching the gospel um, Mm -hmm. because it is absolutely free. Um, Now, like you said, some people say, well, you teach salvation by free grace. That means you can do anything that you want. Have you ever met anybody that used, has actually told you that I can do whatever I want? I, I am saved by grace. All of my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and have used that as an excuse, as a sin? Have you met anyone like that? Yeah, one guy. One, one guy, guy who was, who was going to divorce his wife, and we had a, I confronted him, and we had a long conversation. I remember this. We, were, we went for a walk in a park, and we were walking, and he said, well, you know, God's going to forgive me anyway, you know? Um, so I'm going to go ahead and leave my wife for this other woman, you mm-hmm. know? And of course I explained to him that that was still sin and his attitude in um, uh, forgiveness was rather uh, presumptuous. So therefore God could tell, you know, 
that he was insincere in his in his um, repentance or his sorrow if he went ahead and divorced his wife and then apologized or, or confessed to God. Uh, so it wasn't going to be very effective. I assured him. Yeah. He wouldn't lose his salvation, but he would definitely lose his fellowship with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was using that as an excuse for, for one sin. Um, I don't know that I've ever met anybody that has used an ex- as an excuse for a whole lifestyle of sin. Um, they might exist out there, but usually I ask that question of people and they can usually cite one example and yet it's used as a major objection to teaching that grace is absolutely free or free grace view uh, and yet what i have found is exactly the opposite that thousands of people use free grace as an excuse to serve god not to mm-hmm. sin so it's completely opposite it's really a canard it's really a uh it's a false argument against the teaching of grace yeah, for like a red herring it's like um uh yeah 30 years a minute i had a like and that was about 10 or 12 years ago, I had a, that's 30 years of ministry. That's the only example I could come up with. (laughs) I I don't, I can't come up with one example uh, after 35 years of ministry. So it's, and yet it's a major canard that people use uh, in a sort of straw man argument against um, free grace. But anyway, you did mention that, you know, sometimes people come in and uh, with the idea that they're saved by through baptism. Uh, How do you explain to these people uh, uh, like, for example, Roman Catholics, one, one told me that he was born again when the spirit came upon him in baptism when he was a baby. Um, yeah. How do you explain baptism and its role in, uh, in our, in our lives as, uh, in relationship to salvation? Yeah. Baptism is one of those things like communion where, um, people are kind of fuzzy about it. Um, and, uh, so what I try to do is I, as I interview people who want to be baptized, we have a little workbook that they work through that we wrote and put together. And um, then I sit down and chat with them and make sure they understand it. And, um, and then our worship pastor has another meeting with them to interview them for their testimony and, uh, and does a video of them. So when we interact with people, I think probably the simplest way I explain what baptism is, is I explain spiritual baptism in Romans six, one through four. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's already happened to them that they, when they trusted in Christ as their savior, their old selves died and were crucified with Christ, co-buried with Christ. And then they were resurrected with Christ to their new self. And so that is what water baptism pictures. So I make a distinction between spiritual baptism or change of identity and water baptism. And so water baptism, I tell them, have you ever been in like a skit or a play in school? And I said, that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're, you're doing a little skit. So you're, uh, uh, you're reenacting in a physical way what already happened to you spiritually. So that way everybody understands it. It's like a word picture. Uh, it's an um, outward symbol of an inward reality. And so I think that helps people a little bit. And then I also get the advantage of talking about the our new identity in Christ, which is what is formed when we're spiritually baptized, when we lose our identity to the world, but we gain our identity to Christ. So I said, that's what you're showing everybody now. Isn't that cool? You know? And so uh, um, that's my explanation to baptismal candidates, but to people who are maybe challenging it, I, I walk through different passages of scripture with them and, um, you know, show how from scripture that, 
water baptism doesn't save you, nor does it contribute to your salvation. And then when we baptize people, I share all pretty much what I just said to you. I share with the congregations that way. No visitors and so on don't get the impression that these people are becoming saved that day. No, they're already saved. Yeah. Yes. You can't make that clear enough for people because they will continue to con- confuse that. A lot of times when I ask somebody if they're Christian here in the South, they say, yeah, I was baptized when I was 12. You know, so they immediately conflate baptism with their salvation. And we need to figure out how to separate that. Another thing that uh, people often talk about when it comes to being saved is uh, the need for repentance. And boy, we could get into a long discussion and we don't have time for that. That's probably a whole other podcast. But uh, what about people who who say who, who want to add turning from sins to salvation? Because there's different definitions, as you know, for repentance. But they want to they want to make it a turning from sin. How does that strike you and affect the gospel? Yeah, most of the usages of repentance are directed at in scripture. Most of them are directed at uh, Israel, that national Israel would repent, change her mind um, about her sin and return back to Yahweh. Another, the second highest number of the use of repentance in scripture is for, for believers to change their mind about their sin and so on. But then, as far as it pertains to our, our sinfulness and salvation, um, repent. I, I like the way Charles Ryrie explains it, um, as, if I understand it properly. He says that repentance is, it means change of mind. Metanoia it means change of mind. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of the flip side of faith. It's a, like a, like you see like a two-sided coin. So faith is on one side. It's a proactive thing where you're moving towards someone or something in trust and dependence. But then when you move towards someone, you're also moving away from something as well. Uh, so repentance is um, kind of removing our faith from our previous way. Like that's going to justify or save us or make us right. So you're, you're changing your mind. That that's old system, whatever it might be, doesn't work anymore. And you're changing your mind about Christ, that he is the way, the truth and the life. And uh, that he is the one who will save you and justify you and uh, take away your sins. Yeah, it's hard to imagine somebody who believes in Jesus Christ as savior from sin, who hasn't changed their mind about something that's been keeping them from Christ, whether it was ignorance or or whatever. But um we can't confuse repentance with the idea of turning from sins or else no one would ever really know when they're saved because we continue to sin after we're saved. So there's th- that problem there. But exactly. uh, sometimes Lordship Salvation people say, oh, it's just you have to be sincere about your desire to turn from your sins. Yeah. But then how long does that last, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's issues with that view as well. Yeah. So that, that just continues to be a, an issue with people. They, they sometimes say we're not preaching repentance, but when we look at the biblical example, you know, repentance is mentioned uh, a minimal amount of times and usually in reference to Israel, as opposed to faith. Faith really became and believe really became the normative way of presenting the gospel. Um, and we have the book of John as the best evidence of that that doesn't mention repent at all. But anyway, that that, that topic of repentance uh, just won't die it just goes on and on and on so just wanted to quick take on that i'm interested yeah, some, 
Yeah. Uh, can I just say one more thing about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes like I've, I've been challenged before. It's like, they say, well, well, faith is a work then. You know? Yeah. Faith is a work. And, and so I thought about that and I, and I, and I think, no, faith is not a work. Faith is actually the opposite of a work. It's an anti-work I call it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and I think that that concept helps a little bit because faith, when you're trusting in something like trusting in the share that we're sitting in or whatever, um, uh, trusting in the, um, food to give us uh, energy, whatever. Whenever we're trusting in something, we are not working. We're trusting in the work or the truth of that object that we're trusting in. So uh, faith is an anti-work. It's not a work. Yeah, that's exactly what Romans 4, 4 and 5 is saying, um, is that faith is not work. So yeah, well, that, that argument is uh, really very flimsy as well. When people say faith is a work, I just don't understand how they get cannot understand Romans 4, 4, and 5. I, I, just uh, before we go, I, I was just a little bit more interested in your doctoral dissertation about um, cult-like characteristics of grace-oriented churches, uh, because grace doesn't always lead to graciousness, or orthodoxy doesn't always lead to orthopraxy. And boy, have I seen that <laughs> in, the, in even what we call the free grace movement. Um, what what did you find out were some of the reasons that people who hold to a correct view of the gospel and grace uh, get off track when it comes to the practices in their church or how they lead the church? What are just some of the, I don't know, say it in, in the sense that we might be forewarned, perhaps, even. Yeah, my, my um, the focus of the churches that I studied. Uh, was a little broader than just it included some free grace churches, but there are other churches that were would fit under even the reform banner. But they're they're definitely evangelical. They would fit in that spectrum of okay. Protestantism. So it included some that were lordships, some that were moderate lordships, some that were free grace. And um, I think that it was a it, it's it's the Galatian heresy, you know, where it's a failure to take the vertical theology that is excellent. And in scripture that teaches us how to love one another, how to care for one another, accept one another. And, um, and then it, it fails. We fail to take that vertical and make it horizontal. Um, and um, to take the orthodoxy and make it into good orthopraxy. So that's one, one thing. And it's just our, our, our fleshly uh, natures that take a, a beautiful thing like a, like a local body of Christ, and then it gets distorted. Um, there are three main characteristics of a cult-like church, and I'll tell you those real quick. One is yeah. control, control, centralized control, usually by one person or by a small group of people that aren't necessarily the leadership of the church, but usually are. Mm-hmm. And um, then they have communication, and it's only a one-way communication. It's from top down. So if you ask a question about a problem, you become the problem. And then the third characteristic is lifestyle legalism, which are man-made rules, as well as uh, taking the gray areas of the Christian life, you know, like should we drink alcohol, should we homeschool our kids or send them to public school, um, which version of the Bible should we use, should we watch movies, you know, things like that, the gray areas of the Christian life. And with the pandemic, there are a lot, there are several other gray areas that we can add in, like how do we respond to the coronavirus, do we cancel each other out um, because we might disagree on the response. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
there's always this tendency toward legalism. So I call it lifestyle legalism. Um, and those are the three main characteristics of a unhealthy church or cult-like church. Well, that's good for people to hear so they can, as they move around or looking for a church, they can uh, kind of get an indication of uh, that unhealthy aspect. So it's good to hear that summary. But uh, yeah, they can still they can still get the whole story, the whole research project on Amazon, cult-like characteristics. Uh, John Salveson. Um, and your ministry is uh, what? What is the website uh, for your ministry, Bear Creek Bible Church? Because I'm sure there's a, a lot of valuable sermons people could find there. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's bcbc.org. Bear Creek Bible Church, bcbc.org, and we have a channel on YouTube as well with uh, uh, a lot of stuff, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sermons and teaching and things like that. So. We got a very uh, wonderful group of people. We're involved in planning a church right now in the Hazlitt area. So if anybody is in earshot of Hazlitt, you know, uh, let us know. And we're working hard. We've made a lot of progress. And I hope we're going to start in January doing like a Bible study on a Sunday afternoon um, in the Hazlitt area. Great. I might add that that's Hazlitt, Texas. And you yes. are <laughs> you are in uh, Keller, Texas. You, you got it. Yes. Yeah. Just want to make sure. People understand where that is. Well, John, thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy man. Uh, you have a wonderful church. Uh, I've appreciated my visits there and appreciate your ministry with us at Grace Life and um, on the board and teaching overseas and, and all that you've done, all that you are. So thank you for your time and um, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.